There's no way anybody's listening to this episode. For anybody who is listening, well, welcome. I think this is actually quite the interesting topic. We're going to be covering building and zoning regulations and outlining a system that I think would be much better. So, Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Let's dive right in. Um, We got some cool articles I want to uh, quote some data from, which I think you're going to enjoy. We're going to do a little bit of math, but I promise it won't hurt. Um, And then I'm going to lay out a bunch of questions and answers for my proposed system, which would be an alternative to the way that we currently do zoning and building regulation. Um, This is one of the few things which are just unabashedly anti-free market and top-down in our otherwise at least modestly market-based economy. We have other things like the Federal Reserve just choosing the interest rate, how central planning-ish of them, or the idiocy of the healthcare regulations that crest the very limits of idiocy itself and break into the realm of evil supporting monopolies, then subsidizing them, removing the price mechanism, limiting the quantity of doctors, nurses, and hospital beds, causing artificial shortages. May I remind you, dear listeners, since the 70s, at least here in the United States, we have one-third of the hospital beds as a percentage of the population uh, today, as in the 70s. That's insane. But that's not what we're talking about today. Here, we are talking about building and zoning regulations. But first, I need to get a few things on the table. I'm going to answer at least much of the riddle as to why houses are so expensive. I know so many people who are out there in the market trying to buy houses, and it's pretty awful. It really does put a Put a crimp in your style when you're trying to do the whole, you know, starting a household and raising children's thing. So we need to fix that. We need to have a good, just system. Um, All right. I promised we'd have some math in here. I know very few of you are excited, but um, I also promised it wouldn't hurt. So let's just rip the Band-Aid off. Here's something you should know for this episode and for your life in general. There is a minimum profitable size that builders can build a house. And here's what it's dependent on. It's dependent on the price per square footage that they can sell it at, build it at, and then what the fixed costs are that they're experiencing. So let's just take an example here. Let's say that uh, somebody's very fortunate and finds some land costs that are only 15000 per lot. And let's say this includes water and sewer taps and other fixed costs, permitting fees, etc. Well, this means that if they could, say, sell houses at 200 a square foot and build them at $150 a square foot, then they could build a 300 square foot house and still be making some amount of money. Um, what would happen if we say, I don't know, raised that fixed cost up to $50,000? Well, that means the smallest possible home that we could build without losing money, um, that jumps all the way up to, uh, that jumps all the way up to a thousand square feet because the spread between the market price and the, the cost to actually build the house is $50, 50000 Divided by that equals 1,000 square feet. So, 
Um, what if, uh, what if it was, um, oh, let's see. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Let's get into some real numbers. I think that's all you need to know. That at least shows that, hey, if we increase the fixed costs, even just from, say, 15000 up to 50000 then the minimum size of the home jumps pretty dramatically. Um, let's look at some real examples here. So I'm going to be pulling these numbers from the National um, Association of Home Builders 2022 Construction Cost Survey that was answered by 3,891 home builders. And I think the majority of them were in larger metropolitan you know, politan areas. So the prices are a bit higher than what you might be experiencing in your area. So what it found was that the current um, price per square foot that they were getting was $251 per square foot sale price. And that the finished lot cost was $133,800. And, uh, the cost to build a house, not including overhead or profit or, you know, those things, but just like the direct building cost was about $185 per square foot. So what is the minimum sized house that they can build? I already ran through an example or two. Let's see if you guys can get it. Okay, maybe you did. So the spread is from 251 to 185 and um, that means that uh, we're landing at a 2,027 square foot minimum house because we take that difference and we're dividing the fixed $133,800 lot cost by that and poof, it's actually impossible to build a house um, for less than, that would be 508 thousand dollars when we take the averages out of these builders that is pretty darn insane um so what if we i don't know drop the fixed cost by let's say just picking an entirely not random number fifty four thousand three hundred and ninety dollars which all right that represents the fixed cost of regulation that I will soon quote to you from yet another article. Then we could drop the marginal cost by, oh, let's say, 10.1%, or the additional marginal cost of building, also coming from the next article I'll quote from. Um, well, that means that the cost of building drops to $166.5 per square foot, and we've reduced our fixed cost by fifty-eight or fifty-four thousand three hundred and ninety. So if we just have the government butt its fat face out of the picture, we have well, we have affordable housing returned. Behold, you can now build with just getting regulations out of the way, you can build a nine hundred and forty square foot house and still make so that's your break-even point. After that, it's profitable. So just by getting rid of the fixed cost of regulation and the marginal costs of regulation, we can return affordable housing to the land. 
So for all of you who have been blaming the, quote, greedy developers, um, well, go to Confession for Calumnity and Pride because this is the plain old mass of it, guys. We shouldn't just be blaming people when we don't know what's going on. The people you should be blaming are those who are imposing these high costs on developers such that the minimum size of a house goes up and up and up. All right. Um... When I look at the survey, uh, let's pull up these numbers here, it turns out that the average cost of houses that they are building is $2,561. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on, if break-even is around 2,000 square feet, why are they only tacking on 560-some square feet to this? And the answer is because this gives them a pretty small amount of profit and if they went any bigger, it probably just wouldn't sell or their amount that they would get per square foot would decline as people just plain old can't pay it. We're running up against the limits of what people can pay for a house, which means that we're compressing the, the margins for the developers. It means that we're stretching the budgets of people. And we're doing all of this because we're insisting on really stupid regulations. So... Of this 3,800 uh, uh, organization survey uh, from 2022, it turns out that even though they are selling these houses, the total sales price on average was $644,000, the average profit was only 65369 bucks. So they're making just about 10.1% profit. Oh, and by the way, um, you heard the 10.1% earlier. They're making 10.1% profit and the additional cost burden of the marginal cost is 10.1% also. So yeah, they are making in profit as much as the silly variable cost regulations are destroying in value for you. This is insane. All right, um, let's uh, let's keep cooking for a little bit here. Um, let's talk about the other paper I found. This is from uh, Paul Amrith. Uh, he's uh, writing about economics and housing policy for the National Association of Home Builders. So he's looking at a, a broader group, not just those um, those uh, those people who are building in slightly more expensive areas. Um, but he's looking at all new housing starts, and this is a little bit older. This is coming from, I believe, 2021, so the numbers are a bit smaller. He found that the average new price of a home during this time period was 394300 bucks, And he goes through and calculates the cost of regulatory burden and he calculates it at $93,870. So about $394 in cost, and almost $94,000 of that is regulatory burden. And of this, he found that $41,300 is attributable to the regulation during development, and $52,500 is during construction. So let's talk about this breakdown a little bit. Um, this has been rising like crazy. So 
In 2011, it was 65,000. By 2016, it was 84,000. And now in 2021, it is 93,000. So by today, I would expect this to be well over $100,000 of additional cost. Now, you might be thinking, oh, come on, buddy. Like, I'm sure these regulations, like, are, there's regula- regulations are written in blood, right? You know, there's little people who, who say silly things like that. But let's, let's look at his breakdown. Um, cost of applying for zoning approval. Um, this is the, uh, the regulation cost as a percentage of the housing price. Um, that is 1.7%. Um, and then we have, so that would be, uh, of the total cost of the house. All right. This is all going to sum up to about 23.8. So of the 23.8%, um, regulatory cost as a percentage of the total cost of a house, 1.7 is just the cost of applying for zoning approval, which is insane. What value does that add? Uh, nothing. Why would that be so expensive? Granted, almost a $400,000 house, right? So 1% of that is 4000 So this is almost $7,000 on average just for applying for zoning approval. How dumb is that? The hard costs of compliance is the next group. That's 3%. So that would represent about $12,000. And that would be fees, um, required studies, um, things like that. Then we have land dedicated to the government or otherwise left unbuilt. So they might have a silly regulation, which means that the government has to get a, an easeway or an a- access, or you have to have a certain offset to allow for something. Well, that's 2.9%. Uh, let's see. Then we have standards that go beyond the ordinary. For instance, when they impose setback requirements for houses, which aren't really needed, they go on go beyond what ordinary houses already have, that adds 2.6% of the total cost of the house is that. And I have a real story about this. I just built two houses, well, in the process of building the second, where the offset requirements got switched for me. I had to push them into a gigantic bank, and it cost me thousands of dollars in excavation cost. It made me make a worse product, which is going to hurt me when I go to sell these. Um, and I had to do a massive retaining wall. It's just worse in every way because of the silly setback requirements. If I could have pulled the houses, I don't know, 10 feet forward, then nobody would have been harmed. Nobody would care. Nobody would know. And it would have saved me a ton of money and the home buyer a ton of money. Nobody benefited from that. It just hurts people. That's it. Next one, complying with OSHA and other labor requirements. That's only 0.5%. And I'll add that OSHA requirements, it's not like every single one's a good idea. There's a lot which are just out of control complicated. Like if you have a ditch which is over five feet deep, after how many feet do you need to have a ladder access out before you're out of OSHA compliance? Off the top of my head, the answer to that is every 23 feet unless... There is a, what, man portable access area 
whereby he can basically hop out of the trench and another, I don't know. These are the kind of regulations we have. A lot of them are incredibly cumbersome. If you want to see an OSHA book, it's about three inches thick, and there's no way that these are adding value. Most people already take care for their own safety, and they do so without OSHA coming in and screwing things up. Now, occasionally, they could be doing something good, maybe, but we have to admit, there's certainly such thing as overkill, and there's no mechanism to reduce the regulations, only mechanisms to increase them. So, how on earth would we expect that we'd get the proper amount? Nevertheless, 0.5. Pure cost of delay, 0.4. This is just them doing paperwork at a sluggish governmental pace, and you having to deal with uh, uh, delays in your project. That goes into the final cost of your house, guys. So all of that, those represent the during the lot development. So we have not done anything construction-wise yet, and this is already 10.5% of the cost of your house. So in the case of that $400,000 house, this is over $40,000 of nonsense, just from the things which I named. Now as for during the construction, we have... The biggest category is changes to building codes over the past 10 years. That adds 6.7%. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, we don't want the house to fall down. Well, guess what? They didn't fall down 10 years ago, guys, either. Here's a change. Did you know that um, as of, I think, 2021, you now have to have a neutral in your light switch box, which as you guys obviously have already surmised, that means instead of running wires from the light box to light box using them as a junction, you now ought to use the switch boxes as a junction. Now, personally, do I like this better? Yes, actually, I do, dear listener. I think this is an improvement. But do you really think that that change creates any value for the consumer? No, not really. Now, there's other things like insulation requirements. As of, well, just about today, the insulation requirement for, for ceilings has gone up to an insane R60. So it went from, what, R39 to R40-something. It was only R40-something for like a second before they upped it to R60. Now, you might be thinking, but the more insulation, the better. Well, not necessarily. You'd have to look at the payoff period. You'd have to actually do some calculations, see if this makes sense. But no, instead it's one size fits all. And it can just add cost without actually adding value. Because all the people actually building and selling, well, they're trying to add value as hard as they can while competing with everybody else. The people who just add this stuff, well, they're not trying to add value. Not really. They're just trying to take their best guess on a one size fits all solution. And they're typically being lobbied by, say, those who create different construction project products. Um, the people who create R60 insulation, which is thin enough to fit in, say, vaulted ceilings, did indeed come to the um, regulatory body and lobby that they increase the R value because it's only a few people who can actually provide the materials in order to meet some of these new building code requirements. So that's 6.7%. Architectural design standards beyond the ordinary, right? Beyond the ordinary. 
This is just people saying, oh, for instance, uh, one place I was looking to build did not like the fact that foundations could be, you know, visible. So they required that it had uh, natural cut stone on the outside, which would add uh, to a modest size house, maybe $10,000, maybe more in cost. But some people might want it just with stucco. Some people might want it covered in brick. Some people might be actually fine with just a few cinder blocks showing. Who cares? Or just a little bit of surface bonding concrete. Who cares? But the government cares sometimes and will apply architectural standards beyond the ordinary. 4.8%. So that's going to add, well, what is that? Around $20,000 to your average house. And this is back in 2021. Prices are way higher. So this is way worse. Complying with OSHA and other labor requirements, some of which are ridiculous, 1.5%. And pure cost of delay, 0.3%. So 13.5% is just from this. Do you think that's worth it? No, no, I don't think so either. Um, now, can I imagine instead, I think I've, I've painted, I've painted a picture of our present world where building and zoning powers are just being used for evil. They're raising the cost of housing dramatically and they're making affordable housing all but impossible, which is harming people left, right, and center. They're, well, I think I've made my case, but you might be asking, but Jake, could these powers somehow be used for good instead of just evil? Well, here comes my half-baked idea. Um, I think that, uh, that there is a way, right? Uh, there, there, there are times where building and zoning do make sense, but we would actually have to use some type of value targeting process to find out which are which. What we need, what we need is a market. We need a free market. We need buying and selling and price discovery so we can know which one of these actually makes sense. We need to put the building and zoning codes to the market test. So it's true that um, what one does in their property can affect the value of their neighbor's property. It's true that negative externalities from crime or stress on utilities, uh, crowding of schools, reduction of parking, traffic, encumbrance of views, mismatched architectural styles, all of these can lower the value of an area. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can. All of these do impose real costs on others and... Those others are rational, reasonable, in opposing changes, which will harm the value of their property. That's fair. And the benefits of um, building, uh, although they put costs on some of the, the present people who live in areas, um, the benefits don't go to the existing residents. Instead, the benefits of a new building go to the people who move in, those who sell the land, and the builders and the developers. So it's legitimately true that existing residents get nothing in return except for a diminishment in their property value in many cases. Sometimes a rising tide lifts all boats, but in general, there's a reason that there's the NIMBYs. 
Now, another problem we have, in addition to the fact that existing residents have these negative externalities, is that governments are just generally confused as to what their objective even is while wielding their building and zoning power. Should they try to make their current residents happy who are being assaulted by all these new people coming in and clogging up the roads and whatnot? Or maybe they should make the builders happy? I mean, they're, they're bringing in a lot of value and tax base to their, to their town. Maybe they should make the builders and developers happy. Um, or the current landowners. The current landowners certainly want to be able to sell their land at a high price, and there are people who live in the community. What about their interests? But what about the new residents? I mean, don't we want to increase building so that we, we you know, can offer more housing for people who need it, maybe the poor? Um, who are we supposed to help? Now, just like in the case of the so-called stakeholder capitalism, when you're responsible to everyone, all of these disparate groups with these contrary objectives, well, in the end, you become responsible to no one. That's what happens when you're, quote, responsible for all of the stakeholders. And you know what you do as a result? You go, well, I can always just say whatever I do is benefiting somebody, no matter the decision I make, because they're all kind of intention. I can always talk about how I have a real good intention here. I'm trying to benefit somebody. So I guess I'm actually freed up, not accountable to anybody. I can just be a little petty tyrant. And that's what companies do when they buy into the stakeholder capitalism nonsense. They just are free to be little tyrants. They can do whatever they want because they can always say they're helping somebody, some stakeholder, even if they're going against the interests of others, even if they're going against the interests of those who own their stock. But this whole situation is a terrible strategy. Um, we don't want people confused about their objectives. We don't want to give cover for petty tyrants. We want clear accountability. We want real markers of success. And we want these to represent real benefits to real people. Now, with the companies, it's pretty easy. We, following, say, Dr. David McLean, who we had on the show, we just want them to maximize the long-term value of the firm. And he defends this, and you can look at his book and the episode we had on that. I 100% agree with this guy. Um, this gives a clear um, long-term focus to a company, let's say, whereby they want to maximize the net present value of all their future cash flows, if you will. Um, it gives them real accountability to owners who expect them to maximize that cash flow into the future. But you might be asking what this would look like for localities, for let's take cities as our example. We'll just run with those. What would it look like to maximize the long-term value of a city to return the maximum value to its shareholders? Who are its shareholders? Like the residents, I would suppose. Um, and they do resemble these and have some powers. They can vote. They can elect directors. They can do a lot of things. So I want to lay out um, how exactly we could give cities a, not a stakeholder, but a shareholder kind of um, setup, whereby they have one goal, maximize the value of 
the city. Now, we're going to have to answer two questions before we can lay out a system like this. One is, um, what would their product be, right? Just like a company, we wouldn't be able to tell anybody how they could maximize the value of their company if they didn't have a product. And second, um, how would being a shareholder even work? And uh, well, here's what I got for you guys. The product. I think that they could sell permission to do whatever one wants with whatever land one buys. For example, let's say, I don't know, I wanted to have an offset, which is 10 feet closer to the road than the standard. Well, the city will come out and judge that, you know, it really doesn't matter. It looks fine. The neighbors don't care. And it will save me, say, a total of $10,000. So the city might assess the impact on the neighborhood and offer for sale a $1,000 waiver to waive 10 feet worth of offset requirements. And this transaction would be made public and either factored into future negotiations with the next builder who might hit a similar situation uh, with the city, or maybe just help to establish normative prices so that we no longer need negotiations. We've just had enough scenarios transpire whereby the next builder says, hmm, I would buy this land, but oh, I need a different offset to get away from this one bank. You know what? I could pay $1,000 That's a normal offset waiver fee, and I could move the offset by, oh, 10 feet, right? Now, this revenue would then be distributed to the shareholders. Um, and you can distribute revenue to shareholders in many, many ways. Here's a couple. The city could use it to reduce taxes. Or it could use it to um, pay directly the people who are affected. Like all those people who will, um, who will drop over dead upon seeing a house slightly forward from where the average of the other houses on the road are. All those people who will, who will truly be, their, their lives will be ruined by a small movement of a house down the street relative to the average of the other houses on the street. All those people obviously going to be having the PTSD from this awful uh, diabolical move of a, of a greedy, greedy uh, builder. Those people could be affected. You know, maybe they could be given, I don't know, counseling services to help them get over this horrid tragedy. Or um, maybe we can go the other way and just bring cheer to the residents with my, <laughs> with my pay, payment of a thousand dollar waiver. Um, they could decorate Main Street for Christmas with some of the waiver money so that the people, the residents of this place, um, just feel like more of a community, uh, enjoy the season more, like their city because, hey, it's it's decorated, it, it's, it looks idyllic and beautiful, that's great. Or they could buy a few more fireworks for the annual 4th of July fireworks show. They could improve outdated infrastructure all of these would increase the total value of the city. And uh, let's stop right here and contrast it with the alternative, right? Our current scenario. So we have a dumb rule, no exceptions, and the loss of thousands of dollars of value, a higher resulting home cost for the buyer, and low profit, lower profitability to the builder with no real clear benefit to the community. That's what we're going against. Or... I benefit, houses get cheaper, the city gets some cash to, I don't know, 
uh, fix some broken infrastructure, and the world goes round and round. So other waivers could be sold to, say, install multifamily, uh, multifamily homes to allow for the creation of a duplex. I mean, come on. Why is it illegal to build a duplex? But it is pretty much everywhere. You can't just build the duplex. And that's silly. Duplexes have never harmed anybody. Um, another, I'll give you yet another real-life example. Um, in a city I was working in, there was a house that clearly needed to be leveled. Um, it was uh, ignored. I guess somebody died and the roof caved in from rain. And it needs to be just busted out. And it's on the, the more shady end of the city. So the city doesn't really have the cash to destroy the house, but it's certainly a blight. So I offered to remove the house, but in exchange, they rezone it multifamily so that I could land some really affordable, neat little apartments there that actually the city zoning official thought was a wonderful idea. Well, the bureaucracy did not agree. They can't make a deal like this. In fact, currently, what that would look like is some type of corruption or collusion. I mean, they can't make a deal that would be in literally everybody's best interest. Provide affordable housing to people. Remove a blight on the city. Give somebody's estate, no, mm, give somebody's uh, daughter who just had their dad die a bunch of money for a piece of property, which is otherwise a burden on her. Literally everybody wins, but this can't be done. But under my system, well, it's very simple. We simply, um, they would pay me for, say, destroying the house. Then I would pay them to get a waiver so that I can put a small multifamily uh, unit right here. No problem. Um, let's see. Another example could be, you know, we've been focusing on the first part, the lot development. What about all the construction side? Um, we learned that actually the majority of the regulatory bur burden is here. Well, maybe we could get waivers and we could present them at sales. Everybody knows exactly what we waived for, say, that new requirement to have a R60 value in your attic. Well, maybe you don't need that because you have a really efficient heat pump and you did the math and it's not going to pay for itself in the next, I don't know, 100 years. And uh, you just want to waive that. Well, let's find a price for that. Um, all right. So uh, those are, oh, you know what? One more, one more. I'll give you one more real life scenario. I was looking to purchase a few beautiful building lots, flat, level, gorgeous, grassy, perfect in every way. It was like the Garden of Eden minus the fruit trees. And it was an incredibly, insanely good price. However, the only access was an alleyway. You might be thinking, okay, who cares? Are there other people who go down to their house on the alleyway? Other regular residences which have stood for... 50 years, only accessed by this alley? Yes, 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 there are. However, the city has decided that you cannot build off of an alleyway. No, 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 it is, it is prohibited. Um, so as a result, the person who owns that has a wasted lot. Um, they have to pay taxes on it, and they can't sell it because it's completely useless. And I couldn't have saved the money buying that instead of something else. And people don't get more affordable housing. 
everybody loses. But they could have just sold a alley access waiver. And upon selling the house, I'd say, hey, here's a list of the waivers which I got. One shows that you'll be accessing this on a perfectly lovely alleyway instead of something called a road. And they'll go, cool, I already noticed that because I have eyes. I'll buy the house anyway. And the world goes round and round. So that's, that's the option. We have just a menu of waivers which we can purchase. Um, so that would be the product, a way to skip all the awful regulation. So what's the other side of this? How does stock ownership work under this system? Well, one option is we say um, your share of the city is simply your property and its property value. But the problem with that is that the goal of the city and your goals are not exactly aligned. I mean, that's what's going on in the current system. The city would be trying to increase the total value of the city, but you don't actually want that. All you want is an increase in the value of your property. So under this scenario, we would still have current residents opposing new development and wanting stupid regulations to drive up the property values by restricting supply um, or just driving up costs and prices in general. Um, so we don't want that. We would need something else. Here's what I propose. What if when you um, bought land, you're actually buying two things. You also have to buy into a share of the city. So everybody who, say, owns land, and I think we should base it on land and not just the property writ large for reasons. Um, so anybody who owns land would also be required to buy a city share, which represents a uh, proportion of the value of the land. Um, and once you have this, you own a share of the city. So whenever there's waiver revenue, let's say somebody wants to put in a huge subdivision, well, you live in a nice area, therefore the land under your house is fairly valuable. Therefore, you own a uh, you know a reasonable share of the city. And when they sell all of the rights to build that giant subdivision, well, that is revenue. And that is returned to you in the form of a dividend or a reduction in the, uh, the taxes you have to pay for that property. Um, or you see it realized in uh, the value of the city in those other ways that I mentioned, like various improvements. And then you know that your value, that the value of your share of the city has increased because now it has all new water lines, it has all new sewer lines, or it has a new elementary school or something. And now more people will want to be there, which means they could sell the waivers and the right to come and build for even more, which means that the future cash flows of your share of this organization are now higher because that's a type of retained earnings. Now, we would have to apply a few rules here. And I told you this is a half-baked idea. There's really only two ways to find out if this is a good idea. I think the basic idea is pretty solid and pretty obvious. However, as we figure out how all the shares get issued and if there's a secondary market and all that kind of stuff. Um, the only ways we can figure out if this is good or bad is either build a massive model in our heads and play with it for a long time and see if there's any uh, distorted incentives or anything which just is going to cause corruption or um, weird arbitrage opportunities or to just see if anybody will try it out because that would be wonderful too. 
Um, but one one rule or one idea I had is that uh, developers get an exception where they don't have to actually purchase the shares when they buy land. So they just buy the land from the landowner, and once they build something and then sell their final product, then the share price that comes along with the land, that's paid by the buyer of, say, the house. And then that's bought from the person who held the shares, the original landowner. I think that would be better because it's keeping the fixed costs lower for the developers so that the... Um, so, yeah, kind of like the math example earlier. Keep those fixed costs lower. That allows for affordable housing, not ones which are just subsidized by the government in some silly, ridiculous way where they don't understand any unintended consequences, but in a way which actually represents supply trying to match demand across a variety of different um, levels of quality and, well, quantity when we're talking about square footage. So I think I've laid out the scenario a bit. We have people owning these shares. Um, I suppose you could buy more if you want. Um, you can have the value of your shares rise because of retained earnings or through dividends or through an ability to pay down your taxes. And uh, the, pr the product that we have are waivers to allow people to reduce the cost of uh, building and zoning requirements. Now, I did not take the power of zoning and building stuff away from the cities. So cities can experiment with the extent to which they want to do this. So if it's actually true that these things actually increase the total value of the cities, if that were true the way that it is today, then the most effective cities would actually not have to issue any waivers. But we'll put it to the market test and we get to actually find out as people put their money where their mouth is. Um, I would suspect there are times when the city might deny a waiver and say, hey, this isn't actually for sale. I know you want to put this uh, chemical processing plant up by our drinking reservoir, but mm, it just there's not really a price we can necessarily put on that, right? Or, you know, we want to put the uh, nuclear waste dump right next to the elementary school. Yeah, that does sound good and stuff, but, you know, we do hold the power of zoning. So, um, yeah, we can't issue you a waiver. So in those extreme scenarios, they still hold all the power they need. You can't get a waiver to build your entire house out of uh, popsicle sticks. No, no, you still have to meet certain standards of safety. Sure. But all the things which don't really matter, well, they're, they're able to be ducked if we find out that that's going to create the most value for the actual people who really live in the city. So let's hit a couple objections and answers. And uh, then we have some mailbag questions after that. So let's take a brief pause right here. All right, here's our, our first objection question, whatever you want to call it here. Um, why have... Um, why have this whole system separate at all from just the, the regular payment of, say, income taxes, right? Or not income tax, property taxes. So why not just have, um, you know, the waivers come in, it reduces taxes, and that's it. Isn't that a little bit simpler? Isn't that a little bit easier? Well, the response to that one is I do want to allow for, one, transparency 
in how much value issuing these waivers creating. And nobody really looks at the property tax bill because it's probably paid in escrow by their bank if they have a mortgage. Um, and it's not really broken down what costs what anyway. So I would want more transparency and splitting it from that so that you get income from the waivers and then you pay taxes separately is a better way to get people to actually have transparency on, uh, on what's going on. Um, the other reason is having a secondary market for the shares of the city, I think could have some, some pretty cool effects, which I, I think we're going to hit in some of the other questions. All right. But the next question, why wouldn't the city just have crazy high fr- prices for the waivers? Like, why wouldn't they just set it super high? Some people might wonder that. Well, the answer is there's an ideal price to generate the maximum amount of revenue. It's the same reason why Snickers bars don't cost $10. I mean, you'd think they would make more if they priced it at $10, but they'd only sell a couple of them and not millions and millions. So over time, cities are going to figure out how to maximize revenue by setting not the highest price, but the right price, just like Snickers does. They don't sell them for a penny. They don't sell them for 100 bucks. They have to hit that place right in between. Um, so we have competition from neighboring locales that could undercut the price. So if you have crazy high prices, people can just go somewhere else. And we have plenty of people who just say no to the waivers if you price it too high. So that's why it's not going to get too out of control. Next question. Why wouldn't this just create a race to the bottom where all the prices are near zero as the cities are just competing? So if one city doesn't allow something, well, the next, maybe the next will, right? Um, could this kind of do the, the race to the bottom in the other way until uh, uh, until all the houses just have a thousand waivers, which they got for next to nothing and everything is awful? Well, here's the thing. Um it's the same reason why candy bars aren't, you know, just sawdust wrapped in cellophane. People want quality too. So yes, there is a race to the bottom on price, but there's always a concurrent race to the top on quality. So in a free market, the result of this, the result of running both races at the same time is a journey towards maximum value. That's kind of the combination of quality and good price. It's bang for your buck. So that's what we're getting. So if everybody just issues waivers for a penny, well, A, they're going to realize they're not raising much revenue. And two, well, then if that causes problems in the city, then the value of the city will decline, right? But people want high quality in their city. Also, shares of that um, that city will fall. The property value of that will fall, Um So, yeah, there's a race to the top for quality. There's a positive pressure on that. We also want a pressure on price to bring it down. If we get both of these, we get value. We get bang for the buck. Um, I mean, just as an example, we might have City 1 charges more for waivers, but it can use the funds to have a great police force and have low crime, to have great schools, to have beautiful streets, all funded by the waivers, and then they'll be worth paying because you get to be in a better city. Next question. What if the city uh, taxes people a bunch just to return the cash to the shareholders? And I think this is an interesting question, right? Um, 
we could imagine such a scenario, right, where, where they think, well, we want to increase the total value of the city. Why don't we just why don't we just tax the heck out of the residents? Well, the issue is the way I've set it up, the shareholders are the people who would be taxed. So it would basically just be a wash and a pretty weird transaction to boot. So they're just taxing all these people and then they're returning the cash to the people all based on the same basis, the value of their property. Hmm. And then we could add if the shares, um, let's say they did this and there was a secondary market and other people owned it. Well, people wouldn't want to move in to buy waivers to get the zoning necessary to build if they knew that their tax burden would be super high, which means that the demand for any type of waiver, the demand for any type of real estate would fall and their whole scheme has fallen apart because if they're trying to tax the people in order to boost the share price, but the share price falls as a result because nobody wants to build in a place where everybody will experience crazy high taxation in order to return all the money to the shareholders, well, then they've just shot themselves in the foot. So I don't think that's going to happen. All right. So what happens if there's just a ton of interest in a secondary market of, say, shares of Waynesboro, Virginia? What, what happens next? Like, just game it out. Okay, so the value of the shares increases, which would incentivize people to sell their shares. Also, the city would want to offer more land so that it can offer more shares for sale. Because again, the shares are linked to the value of the land which is sold. So basically, the city, if it saw the value of the shares jump, would be incentivized to issue more stock by opening up more land. So... If, say, Waynesboro, Virginia is viewed by the market as a great place to live, and, I, you know, it's all right, um, and it's expected to yield a great amount of revenue as a result of it being a great city to live in, then the market will incentivize more building in Waynesboro because the city wishes to issue more of that stock and thus, therefore, open up more land. So the revenue of this new issuance would then be returned to the shareholders in some form, either in a dividend or in some type of retained earnings, etc. Or heck, I don't know, maybe even a stock split. We could do something crazy like that too. So when the developers arrive to buy the land, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, a little complicated. So when the developers say, wow, everybody wants to live in Waynesboro, we should go over there, the landowner on the margin, um, would be more willing to sell. Whoa, why? Well, um, because the price he would get paid is higher. And let's look at how this breaks down because it's a two-part sale. So um, when he sells, the developer gets the land and the new buyer eventually gets the stock, has to pay for it. So let's just pretend that landowner's reserve price, what he was willing to to sell the uh, sell the land for was ninety thousand. It wouldn't take any lower for this lot. Well, then let's say everybody wants to live here. The stock price exploded in this scenario, right? And it went from uh, thirty to sixty thousand dollars. I have no idea what the prices would end up being, but let's just say it went from thirty to sixty thousand um, dollars as connected to the land. Well, then here's what's crazy. Under this system, if the landowner who, who's seeking to sell 
and will sell at 90000 If he gets 90000 he sells it, right? I know I'm slowing down here. If that's a two-part sale, so there's payment for the land and payment for the stock, but the value of the stock linked to that guy's land increases from 30 to 60, then the amount that he'll accept for the land alone falls, right? Because before he was going to require 60,000 for the land and he's getting 30,000 for the sale of the stock when the new buyer owns it or when the new buyer purchases the newly built house after the developer purchased the land from him. Um, but now, hey, if the stock is raising 60000 if that's the worth of it, then he only actually needs thirty from the land. So now, this is a pretty wild scenario. Normally, as more people want to go into a city, we have prices jump and land becomes prohibitively expensive. And this is kind of the reverse because we've broken it into a two-part sale. So now we have developers are able to move in and have low fixed costs because they only pay for the land portion, the 30, and then the 60, the, the stock price, is then paid by the buyer once it's completed. So the landowner still gets its 90. Um, I hope that made any sense via a podcast. I'm doing math on the podcast and all this stuff. My goodness. All right. So that's how I see it it going. I mean, there's a lot more going on. It's in economics, everything is constantly moving and trying to get back to equilibrium. Everything affects other things. We it, It's a very long chain of events. And one of the key economic questions is what happens next? And you can always ask that question again. And anybody who's considering an idea like this needs to continually ask the question, what happens next, until we find that, all right, we've figured out what it will look like in equilibrium. Um, that's what I meant earlier by, in order to understand this whole thing, we have to build the whole system in our head and keep on playing with it. <laughs> See what would happen if the price of the stock jumps, how that would affect land sales, um, fixed costs, variable costs, all that stuff. And it's a half-baked idea, so I don't think I can give you all the answers. Next question. Um, half-baked as it may be, is this a crazy idea? To which I'd say, um, no, not really, because there's actually private cities now. Um, they're seeking to be cheaper, freer, safer, more efficient than traditional government cities. And this type of approach to building and zoning, I think would just fit hand in glove with them. And I'd actually be a little surprised if there isn't some version of this being proposed already, particularly in private cities. And further, there are semi-private communities which exist all over. A lot of resort towns, like I have one called Wintergreen near me with like thousands of homes and has its own security force and fire department and they maintain their roads and they have their own water and sewer. They are a private for-profit small government. Um, those exist. So there are semi-private communities and I could see them taking something up like this also. And finally, even traditional cities and localities could do something like this. Now, they have pretty screwed up incentives and in that most of these officials don't gain anything and don't gain anything from their city for being reasonable with building and zoning. They, they just err crazy on the side of caution. They're happy to push costs on other people because it doesn't hurt them. It's no skin off their back. All they want are 
clear rules that they can hide behind so that they have an easy day. But if they were willing to take more of a can-do attitude of a, yes, let's figure out how we can do it. Okay, you need a different offset. Let's find out a way to make it worth it to you, your neighbors, the community. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Then I think they could implement something like this. And here's a possibility if they wouldn't be able or willing to do it. And here's a business idea for somebody. What if we set up a company that borrows the city's regulatory power and have them sell the waivers? So the city has a buffer from the public and has professional people to do all these reviews and uh, maybe even negotiate on these weird edge cases. And then they could suggest how to compensate these different groups from, you know, heaven forbid, a front offset five feet closer to the road or a <gasps> gasp, 1,350 square foot house in an area only zoned for 14 and up, 1,400 and up. Ooh, that last one made me shudder. Can you even imagine? 50 square foot too small. Hmm. I would just, my day would be ruined. Um, so we could have a company that specializes in assessing things and selling waivers at the right price. And then they would just remit a large portion of the earnings to the city and the city can do whatever they think uh, people want them to use that money for, or maybe just reduce taxes. And I think most people would be in favor. So that's a business idea. Just have a company which borrows the power or just at least advises and deals with all of the selling of waivers and everything. And uh, I think the world would be a better place. Sirs, I don't think this is a crazy idea because it can be um, tried out um, in stages. I mean, we don't have to go all at that last situation. I don't didn't go all the way to having, you know, secondary markets for stock and the total value of a, a city. No, I didn't go that far. If we just had that first part that we have a product, we have the waiver system. So there's an alternative to just a hard no. And instead, we can make it worth people's while to uh, to issue exceptions based on value, not based on government silly fiat. Um, there you go. There you go. So I don't think it's a crazy idea. So to kind of sum this up, I, I do want to say that, you know, for those of you who have stuck around for this more in the weeds, I don't know if it was boring. I try not to make boring episodes, but, you know, episode that most people don't seem to uh, care about too much. Not too many people are on the street saying, hey, let's talk about building and zoning regulations. I got some great ideas. Um but I wanted to do this one because I think it's really important. Um, many of the ep other episodes are very religiously themed. And uh, I don't see a crazy divide between this episode and ones where I'm, say, calling people to virtue. Um, I mean, this is an important facet of our life together. We, as, as Christians, particularly Catholic Christians, we champion the importance of family formation. Well, guess what? They're going to need a place to live. We talk about how important it is to have parents active in the lives of the kids and not just working. Well, guess what? How are they going to put food on the table? How are they going to pay the mortgage? How are they going to do these things? We opine about how people should be giving alms to the needy and how people need housing. Okay, great. How's that going to work if every house costs 600K, interest rates are 7%? Hmm? How are you going to have a one, one earner family on that? How are you going to afford uh, religious education? How? You, you can talk all you want about that, but it doesn't matter. What matters is actual solutions to these problems. And they are problems. This is a type of crazy injustice. This is a real economic injustice, not the silly stuff you always hear from the left. These are burdens that we're putting on people that just hurt people. And if removed, 
would make people's lives tangibly better and allow them to do things that we want them and call them to do. Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, without real solutions like this, when we talk about how, oh, yeah, you should pay for religious education or, yeah, you know, you should, uh, you know, spend more time with your kids, not just work. Then we're not helping anybody when we say that stuff without trying to solve the real problems. Instead, we're just heaping up burdens and stress and guilt on people who feel like they can't do it. So let's fix that. And I think this is a great way to do it. Also, um, I think this is important because what I'm advocating for is justice, right? To give to each their due. That's the basis of this whole system is justice. So we're trying to match the cost burden we're putting on others to the price that people are paying. And we're trying to make a real system that delivers actual value and doesn't just hurt people for no reason. It doesn't show partiality to one group or another. Um, we're trying to bring in justice, and that's the basis of our life together is justice. You can't have the city without it. Hashtag Plato's Republic. Um, and Leviticus says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's what I've been advocating for. Let's judge our neighbors fairly. Let's not screw over the poor. Let's not screw over the rich. Let's create something which creates real market prices about reality, not government fiat. So as I've said many times, don't be justice perverts and don't be any type of pervert, dear listener. Um, but yeah, advocating for this kind of stuff is important. It allows people to um, to achieve goods which are over and above economic goods. It allows us to have justice together, um, to live a more happy, verdant life. These are important. Um, mailbag questions. Where are we, guys? Uh, we got two questions sent in for the show, and uh, they're, they're pretty interesting. First one, are the cherubim with the flaming swords at the Garden of Eden the first images of purgatory? Um well, I would say I'll give this one a, an unsatisfying maybe. I think actually Jordan Peterson uh, suggests this point. Um, here's why one could be excused for saying yes. One, it's, uh, it's making a border between paradise and sinful humanity where crossing would imply being burned and cut. Purgatory is a place that divides or cuts us off from our sin and cleanses and purifies us on our way to paradise. So in that sense, yeah, you could you could do that. There's nothing wrong with seeing this as a picture of paradise or of purgatory. But here's why I would say no, and this is actually the way that I lean. Um, the Garden of Eden is not equivalent to heaven. It lacks a beatific vision. It's just a super awesome earthly place. Also, it's the Holy Spirit, not angels, that purify us in purgatory. And the cherubim that are stationed here seem to be connected to the throne of God. Um, you could see that with the Ark of the Covenant, the vision that Ezekiel has of the cherubim, uh, times they pop up in the Psalms. And uh, Thomas Aquinas explains that these cherubim are in the second highest place, and they relate to knowledge. So seraphim are the ones who are burning with the very love of God. They're the closest to God. They're in the top. Um, but cherubim are one step down. They're somehow connected with um, with the throne of God and like the knowledge. That's why we see them around the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and that's why we also see them 
showing up in the Garden of Eden because the sin was about the knowledge of good and evil. So they are the ones that are connected with knowledge. So the purgatory connection would make more sense if God used seraphim and not cherubim because, I mean, God's, um, I mean, seraphim would make sense because they're the burning love of God and that's what purifies us in purgatory is the burning love of God such that we can have connection with God. And seraphim are the ones who burn with the love of God and are the most connected to God. So that would have been the ones that I would think God would put there if he was showing a picture of purgatory. Um, instead, I think what he's doing is he's, he's showing us, um, he's showing us something different. I think the cherubim represent, um, uh, stuff going on in the old covenant. So, oh, let's see. I think they, they kind of represent the power of the law. So the power of the law, um, that's pictured as a sword, right? See Romans nine, for instance, and, the entrance into the understanding of the law comes when Moses first confronts the fire at the burning bush, and then again with all the fire and brimstone and crazy stuff going on at Mount Sinai. And the whole drama of the Exodus is that they're going to a new promised land, and it's not heaven, but it's a super awesome land. So I think that the whole cherubim guarding the Garden of Eden with the fiery sword really parallels what goes on later in like the book of Exodus, where we see the fire of the bush. They're then invited to accept the law, which gives them the knowledge of how to act, gives them the knowledge of how to worship. The cherubim then show up again around the Ark of the Covenants. They learn how to have this um, law about liturgical worship, and then that guides them into the promised land. Recall, when they get to the Jordan River, they bring the ark out first, they step in the water, and it opens up the waters, and then they walk in, right? So it's the cherubim who are leading them back into the promised land. That's what it's pointing to. Now, are there ways that the Old Testament then points even further to the new? Yeah, I think so, but I don't see the close purgatory connection here. So I lean towards no. It's not the most natural fit but you're excused in believing it and there's ways to make it work. I think it more relates to the role of cherubim, the role of the law, the role of the Ark of the Covenant, Old Testament, Promised Land, stuff. On to the next question, which is ridiculous. And a reminder to all of you that you can send in any question at all and I'm happy to answer any of them. This is word for word. King Charles has cancer. Should we colonize and free that poor island nation from its Protestant demagogue rulers strike whilst the king is weak and reinstate a Catholic ruler. In a word, no. In two words, what? No. And in my typical torrent of babbling, one, the king has very little power and is not really ruling anything. And also the rulers are primarily not even religious. I wouldn't call them just Protestants. Second, I don't think he's a demagogue. And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's strange. Anyways, and the we in this question is quite puzzling indeed. I would have to know, I would really like you to clarify who we is. The we to be potentially dethroning the king and colonizing England? What? I don't know. <laughs> and finally, um, for all the other confusion, which is wrapped up in this admittedly uh, funny and probably, in, hopefully, ingest question, 
I refer you to the uh, five-part church and state series. Um, hopefully, that'll sort out the rest. Um, yeah, we get a surprising amount of questions which seem to relate to the UK. A disproportionate amount of people who email in from the UK, even though it's only 2% of listeners. So if you're listening from the UK, listen more, guys. You're only at 2%. Canada is in front of you. Um, then I th- Let's see. U.S., Canada, UK, South Africa, then Japan, then a ton of other nations, including ones which I had never heard of until they popped out. So, shout out to you, Federated States of Micronesia. I see you on there, and now I know you exist. And I think I may have blown somebody's mind out there who's listening in the Federated States of Micronesia and thinking, I've never heard a shout out to my beloved, I assume, island nation or or I think it's an archipelago. I don't know. Anyways, email me in if you're from there. We should wrap this up. Coming up next, we have uh, two interviews before long. One is with Father Sirico, President Emeritus and founder of the Acton Institute. He's coming on to help us understand the authentic Catholic view of free markets and its intersection with Catholic social teaching. This guy is awesome, and I can't wait for that interview. Also, we have a man named Gary. And he's preparing to shed a bunch of light on the topic of anxiety and depression, giving answers from a Catholic perspective. A lot of people are struggling with this stuff, and he really is the guy to listen to. So I'm also very excited about that. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I hope you guys share that one and share all of these episodes. Um, This is, of course, the end of the the uh, podcast appeal to you. Send in your questions, suggestions for shows. I definitely need some more of those at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And for the love of all that is holy, please leave a review. Um, On bigger podcasts, I don't think that makes a hill of beans difference, but this is not a big podcast. If you're listening to this, you are the, uh, the few, the proud, and the brave. And if you write a review on Apple or Spotify, those are the best places, somebody is going to read your review. Probably a lot of people are going to read it. I will for sure. Um, And you get to act as a guide and um, uh, you get to help inform people about what's going on here and why they ought to or ought not to listen to it. So I would definitely invite you to, to stop and write up something quick and uh, let people know why on earth would you would you ever listen to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast because people are going to go to your um, your reviews because you're still in the first ones in. It's a pretty small podcast, guys. All right, well, do all that stuff. Have a lovely week and thanks for listening as always. God bless. <laughs>